Section 7 of The Romance of the Romanovs. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Romance of the Romanovs by Joseph Martin McCabe. Section 7 A Romanov Princess Continued. Peter was now a well formed and handsome young giant more than six feet high, with intelligence enough to know his duty and strength enough to achieve it. To say, as is said, that he was slowly preparing himself for a great task is mendacious flattery. He was enjoying himself, and he cared for naught else. What there is in his later life to entitle this flower of the Romanoff shoot to be called great, we will consider in the next chapter. But well into his manhood, he was merely vicious, impulsive, and selfish. He disliked the pomp and conventions of the court and avoided them, mainly because he had the taste of a boar and was happier in squalid rooms where he could spit and slop brandy and riot as he willed. His days, especially in the summer, were spent in hard work because he loved it. He worked at shipbuilding, there was a large lake at hand, with just the same zest and motive that a boy does, not from any far-sighted vision of a need to cleave a path for Russia to the sea. He drilled and drilled and gradually formed regiments which would one day be famous because he had had a passion for soldiering and, as I said, a vague imperial idea of one day commanding armies and gaining great victories. And when the work was over, or when the fierce grip of winter arrested all work, he sat down to orgies which few could endure long. Between the village where he lived in Moscow lay the foreign settlement to which I have occasionally referred, and here Peter got some education. The neat brick villas did not impress his imagination, for he had not even an elementary taste, but he had a mechanical, inquiring mind, and the instruments these foreigners brought into the heart of Russia piqued and stimulated him. Somehow these people beyond the plains could do everything better than the Russians. They could make clocks, watches, astronomical instruments, elaborate tools, superb weapons, magnificent firearms. He heard that they could make ships compared with which his boats on the lake were like children's toys. He must get these secrets for Russia. One secret he learned, the making of fireworks, and the whole country reeked and stank with his constant displays. And they could drink, these English and Scots and Germans of the foreign quarter. Caravans of wine and brandy poured into the quarter, and Peter would come along, black with the smoke of his fireworks, or streaming with perspiration from drill or shipbuilding, and sit down to a glorious carouse. His great friend was a Swiss named Lefort, whose capacity for drink was phenomenal. Peter built a small palace with a huge ballroom for Lefort and made it the headquarters of their debauches. It was a general rule that everybody was drunk every night. If a woman refused a pot of brandy, Peter would fetch her a clap on the side of the head to which drunkenness was preferable. Decent women kept far away from the two colonies. Peter sober had little self-restraint, but Peter drunk. The shipping idea grew upon him until, in 1693, he had wasted four years since the retirement of Sophia, he decided to visit Archangel. It is curious to read of such a man asking, like a boy, his mother's permission and promising not to go upon the water. He, of course, took no notice of his promise when he got there and saw the ocean. A ship he had ordered from Amsterdam was out in the roads and he impulsively started off in a totally unsuitable boat to visit it. He was nearly drowned. When he trod the deck, dressed as a Dutch captain, and saw the great sails belly in the wind above him, he went into transports. He sat for hours drinking hard with the Dutch sailors and listening to stories of their voyages round the world. There was no country like Holland, and he there and then adopted for Russia the Dutch red, white, and blue flag, 
reversing the order of the colors. In January, he was summoned back to Moscow with the news that his mother was dying. She died so slowly and kept him so long from the sea that he cursed volubly. But he shed copious tears, boy as he was, when she died, and he fled like the wind back to Archangel. That there was any large profit in this minute study of ships and sailors may be confidently denied. Monarchs and statesmen have built fleets without knowing the difference between port and starboard. Peter was enjoying himself, but in his wild mind there was inevitably growing a recognition of his position and opportunities. He was now more than twenty years old and intelligent. It was quite time that he recollected that the destiny of Russia was entrusted to him. Of its internal condition he does not seem to have had the glimmer of an idea, but it suited his passion to believe that Russia needed a fleet and must first have a sea to put the fleet on. The powerful Swedes dominated the Baltic, so he turned south and decided to take Azov on the Black Sea from the Tatars. He may have known that the country was disgusted and scandalized at his idleness and that Sophia watched eagerly from her convent. His expedition against Azov was crudely conceived and a total failure. He saw at least that he and his amateur foreign friends were inadequate, and on his return to Moscow, he sent abroad for skilled men, sailors and shipwrights from Holland and England, soldiers and engineers from Austria and Prussia. Some came, and many of these, when they saw the crowds in the country, returned. All drank copiously. But Peter's mighty energy was roused. In a remarkably short time, he had a sea-going fleet built on the Don, ready to cooperate with his land attack upon Azov. He took it and returned in triumph to Moscow. The one vague imperial idea in his wild and much-abused brain fed on his success and grew larger. Russia must have a mighty fleet, like Holland and England, and must learn this western art of doing things. He sent fifty officers abroad for education. But he must see these wonderful lands himself, he must know everything himself, and he began the preparations for the famous melodramatic journey which shocked Russia and scandalized Europe, and undoubtedly brought great profit to him and his country. Boyish in all things, he would go incognito. Russian historians have invented a score of interpretations of every weird action of the hero. He hated pomp and ceremony, it is said, but the truth is that he sulked heavily when he was not recognized. The simple fact is that he had a boyish, impulsive, muddled mind, its great strength and originality marred by a wicked education and by debauch. He would pretend that it was a deputation of Russian envoys, and he made a sort of prince of his friend Lefort, giving him a suite of forty-four gentlemen and servants. He would hide his own figure, he was six feet eight inches in height and wore disguises that would attract attention at a hundred yards, in the crowd under the modest title of Peter Mikhailov, a non-commissioned officer of the Priobrzhinsky Regiment. The journey was to start in February, after the carnival revels, about which a word may be said later, but a plot against his life was discovered at the last moment, and he delayed to punish it. A former servant of Sophia, named Sickler, and some of the Strelsi were implicated in it. The implication of the Miloslavskis brought on one of those blind rages in which he behaved as one demented. He had the body of Ivan Miloslavsky, which had rotted in the grave for twelve years, dug up and brought on a sledge, drawn by twelve hogs, to Priobrzhinsky. There it was placed in an open coffin under the scaffold on which Sickler and his chief accomplished were hacked to pieces so that the blood of the traitors might splash upon what was left of the moldering remains of Sophia's relative. Leaving a large army to overawe Moscow, he set out in March 1697. The journey has been described so often that only a few details concerning his behavior need be noted here. 
from Sweden, where his incognito was respected with a cynical correctness which infuriated him, he passed to Germany, where the elector of Brandenburg was eager to conciliate him. His conduct was rather worse than that of an undergraduate on a holiday, as he did not even know the elements of polite behavior. The elector sent his master of ceremonies, a grave and learned gentleman, to greet Peter at his lodging, since he refused to be recognized on the ship by the prince sent to receive him. Peter snatched Johann von Besser's powdered wig and flung it away. Who is this? he demanded sullenly, and when the old gentleman's functions were explained to him, he broke out, Let him bring me a wench, then. Later, when a noble came to announce that the elector could not call upon him, Peter, drinking heavily and slobbering over his friend Lefort, started angrily to his feet, grasped the noble by the throat, and almost suffocated him. In the street he met a lady of the court and startled her with a gruff halt. Then he curiously examined the watch at her wrist and let her go. One night, when he supped with the elector, a servant dropped a plate. Peter sprang up, sword in hand, livid with excitement, and he was not pacified until the servant was flogged. They had in the city a wheel on which criminals were broken, but they protested, in answer to Peter's wish to see at work, that they were without a criminal. Let them have one of my men, he said coolly. His adventures at Konigsberg would precede him, and he made his way loudishly from court to court until he reached Holland. Everyone knows the idyllic picture of Peter the Great serving a long apprenticeship to shipbuilding in the village of Sardam. It is another exploded myth of our childhood. Peter remained there only a week, staying at the village inn, where he seduced the maid, smoking large pipes and drinking large pots with the boatmen. That he used in ads is certain, but there was little romance. His tall, slovenly form, very untidily dressed in Dutch fashion, attracted the stones of the little boys, and he moved on. He appeared in more polite quarters in a brown overcoat with horn buttons, coarse darn socks, and dirty shoes. Someone suggested that he would see better shipbuilding at London, and he crossed and bewildered London. He had a fine brown skin and large handsome eyes and thick hair, but apart from his habitual untidiness of dress, he had a nervous malady which caused a twitching of the limbs and a remarkable habit of grimacing. He constantly took for it a powder made of the flesh and wings of the magpie. At table, his habits were atrocious. In fact, he and his servant, Menshikov, discovered a little tavern on Tower Hill where he could smoke his pipe and drink peppered brandy as if he were at home. At Deptford, where he lived in Evelyn's house while he studied shipping, he made such filth and damage that Evelyn estimated the repairs at $1,750. Here, as elsewhere, his morals were notorious. Professor Morphill politely observes in his History of Russia, the great monarch was somewhat irregular in these matters, it must be confessed. The phrase would have sent the great monarch into convulsions of horse laughter. There is grave reason to believe that such irregularities were not his worst vices. The redeeming feature of his journey was that he learned a vast amount in those few months. Much of his learning was a result of the sheer nervous instability and did more harm than good. He studied dentistry, the dentistry of the 17th century, and took implements home with him to the terror of his friends. When his valet one day complained to him that his wife refused to discharge her conjugal duty on the ground of toothache, the Tsar had the woman brought to him and he extracted a tooth. He gathered also a box of surgical instruments and often used them. On one occasion he tapped a poor woman of Moscow who suffered from dropsy and caused her death. He pried into everything, rushing from place to place and working with prodigious energy, though it is said that he ended every day of his life intoxicated. 
What came of it all for the development of Russia, we shall see in the next chapter. The voyage came to an abrupt end at Vienna in the late summer. There had, he heard, been a new revolt of the Streltsy. General Schein had put it down and severely punished the rebels, but Peter decided to return to Moscow. On the day after his return, the nobles came respectfully to Priobrzynski to do homage and share a banquet. Peter, half-drunk, called for scissors, and soon the beards of his nobles, the beards which an almost sacred tradition imposed in Russia, were falling upon the floor. Was it a drunken man's joke? Peter did far worse things than liquor. He cut right and left with his sword. He caned an offending servant until he died. He ran his sword through an abbot who offended him. He even one day knocked down and trampled on his intimate friend Lefort. But this was not a jest. The Ukasi went forth that in future, Russians must shave. He was going to westernize Russia. Some Russian historians, seeking to palliate the horror of what is to follow, apply it to some measure the idea of reform. The Strelsi were in the way of the reform of the army. They were undisciplined, obsolete, incompetent. Their last revolt had given him the right to destroy them, and he would. But there was much more than this. He was convinced that Sophia was at the bottom of the revolt, and he would make a terrible inquiry. There seems to be little doubt that Sophia had fomented the spirit of revolt and attempted to direct it in her interest. All the Russian world was scandalized at the Tsar's conduct, and she had from her convent watched the spread of the discontent. At last, while Peter was in England, some representatives of the Strelsi had come to Moscow to complain of their treatment. After the taking of Azov, Peter had brought his favorite regiments to share his triumph and pleasure at Moscow, and had left the Strelsi to rebuild the shattered fortifications in the distant south. With something of their old independence, they had sent a few men to Moscow to lay their grievances before the Tsar. There they were astounded and further angered to hear that the Tsar had left Russia months before, and no man knew where he was. There could be no redress for grievances when the Tsar turned his back upon his people and wasted his life among the detested foreigners. Sophia's friends and servants pressed the lesson deep. Was it not advisable to think of a new ruler, one who would be considerate to the Strelsi? The men probably saw the great strength of the garrison at Moscow, and they returned to Azov only with a sullen report of their helplessness. The military authorities then ordered part of the Strelsi to the Polish frontier, and this drove the men to fury. They set out on the long march to Moscow, in full mutiny, with the intention, apparently, of exterminating Peter's supporters. But the Tsar had left his best generals, Shine and Patrick Gordon, in command of the troops, and they met the mutineers outside Moscow. After a futile parley, the cannon and the cavalry were turned upon the helpless foot soldiers. Hundreds were slain and thousands captured. The revolt was thoroughly suppressed long before Peter reached Vienna. But the young Tsar was in one of his moods of deliberate ruthlessness. The Strelsi had deluged his mother's palace with blood when he was a child. They had commemorated his departure by a plot and had taken advantage of his absence to rebel. These paid servants, these antiquated soldiers, presumed to criticize his plans and fancy themselves as masters of the Russian throne. And behind all their revolts, he saw always, barely concealed in the gloom, the figure of his masterful half-sister. He resolved, once for all, to remove this source of irritation from his empire. Immediately after his return, fourteen torture chambers were fitted up in the village of Priobozhinsky, and the captured Strelsi were soon suffering all the agonies that Byzantine and Moscovite ingenuity could devise and the fiendish temper of the Tsar could augment. 
Peter himself hovered round while his victims writhed on human gridirons or had their flesh torn from the bones by the knout. Many of their womenfolk were included in the ghastly torture, which went on night and day for three days. But Peter got no confession of the guilt of his sister, and he decided to act without it. On September 30th, a first batch of 200 of the unhappy rebels, part of them scarred and drawn with torture, were brought up for execution. It is credibly reported that Peter wielded the axe himself and severed five heads. His companions were told to follow his example, and few dared draw back. His infamous servant, Menshikov, is said to have cut off 20 heads, and the horror of incompetent bungling by amateurs in such matters may be seen in other pages of medieval history. In brief, the slaughter extended over several months, and thousands of Strelsi were executed. The ancient corporation was entirely broken, and the fragments were included in the new army. In the Red Square at Moscow, the heads of the rebels remained on the points of pikes until they rotted into grinning skulls. The wives and children were driven from Moscow. It was decreed that none should give them bread, and they disappeared silently into the plains and forests beyond. How many escaped famine or the wolves, no man knows. Russia learned that it had an autocrat, Peter the Great. And this meant the end of the career of the masculine Sophia. As she shuddered in her convent, 200 of the rebels were brought up and hanged within sight of her windows. Some of them held in their dead hands copies of a petition to her to see their grievances remedied. Then Peter turned upon her. She must lose her rank, have her hair shorn, and pass the rest of her life in strict seclusion as a nun. With the name of Sister Susanna, the forceful and unscrupulous woman passes out of sight. Although there was no evidence of her guilt, and it is indeed unlikely that she was involved, Peter's wife, Eudokia Lapukin, was condemned to the same fate. She was at least guilty of refusing to share Peter's tastes, and he lived little with her. He was free, and from the horrible shambles he turned to the revels of the carnival of 1698 and the more congenial company of the women of his favorite district. End of section 7